Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Podcast. This is Pastor Josh. Thank you for tuning in. I'm so glad to share the next few minutes with you today. I want you to find victory and life in Jesus Christ. At Valley View Friends Church, we like to say that we're learning how to live as God's people by reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. I want to encourage you to look us up on the web at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. And uh, these podcasts are posted on our church website. They're also on Facebook. You can check us out on Facebook. So today, we're going to continue our series in the book of Ruth. About halfway through, a little more than halfway, the theme for our year, as I've said multiple times, is holy. We're to be a holy people. And Ruth has a lot to say about the holiness of the decisions that we make. And this is especially seen in today's story, chapter 3 of Ruth, as we see Ruth and Boaz both decide to conduct themselves with integrity for God. Now let's turn our attention to this week's message. Plutarch writes these words, Character is simply a long habit continued. Phillips Brooks writes, Character may be manifested in great moments, but it's made in the small ones. Abigail Van Buren writes these words, The best index to a person's character is how he treats people who can't do him any good and how he treats people who can't fight back. That is a good way to measure a person's character. Thomas Paine writes, Character is, a much, character is much better kept than recovered. One can acquire everything in solitude except character. And finally, character is what you are in the dark. Today I want to talk about character, or rather, let's talk about integrity. And I think integrity is the state of our character. It's Integrity talks about being unified, being whole, undivided, and we want our character to be undivided. We want it to be solid and good, built on something that is unwavering. And when it comes to an integrity, we often think of a person's unwavering moral character. And just like these quotes about character, your integrity is made in the small moments when no one's looking, and it is found in the dark when you're alone. As we continue the story of Ruth, we encounter a provocatively awkward scene today in Ruth chapter 3, and yet though the scene is questionable, Ruth and Boaz's character is not. The big idea I want you to get today is this. One of the holiest decisions you make is to walk in a way that is honoring to God, especially when everyone else says that way is foolish. Let's go ahead and read Ruth chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter today, verses 1 through 18. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash... Put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know that you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. And then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. 
When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovering his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. "'Who are you?' he asked." I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether richer or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. If he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning." So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he also said, Bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she asked, How did it go, my daughter? And then she told her, And she told her everything that Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Ah, yeah, it is, if you're honest about reading that scene, as wonderful as it is, it's an awkward situation. What's going on there? And yet it's also a scene of awesome integrity. It's a strange situation, and it's kind of foreign to us. A meeting in the dark on the threshing room floor. What on earth is going on? And while the situation may seem suspect, the integrity of our characters is not. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, now that she has had a glimmer of hope, has decided that she must help Ruth. And Naomi is willing to jeopardize a sure thing for what is better for Ruth to be provided for in the long term. Though they're poor... Right now, at the beginning of Ruth chapter 3, Ruth has secured the benevolence of Boaz. She's allowed to glean in his fields as long as there's a harvest. And you get the impression she would continue to have this favor to gather foods in his fields indefinitely. But Naomi knows as much as that is some security, it's not a real life. She wants more now for Ruth. She wants Ruth to have the security of a marriage. That's the culture they lived in. But the proposal is risky. Boaz could say no. Boaz could uh, really look down on Ruth as a Moabite. He could rescind his offer of allowing her to glean from his fields from this point on. It's a risk. But Naomi gives Ruth instructions, and Ruth trusts her. We need to note that. And Naomi says, prepare yourself. Wash, put on perfume, put on your best clothes. It sort of feels like Naomi is asking Ruth to entice Boaz into marriage. That's not quite what's going on, although there's some that argue about what's really happening here. There is disagreement, if you read Bible scholars on this particular chapter, of what's trying to happen here. 
of all the guesses that there are, because it's a lot of guesswork to figure out what's going on, these are the guesses that I think make the most sense. And that's this. Naomi has had Ruth dress up and prepare herself to show that she's ending her season of mourning. To show that, yes, her husband has passed away, she's a widow, she's been grieving, but now she's finished. She's finished the grieving. She's going to prepare herself. She's going to put on regular clothes again to show she's ready to enter the world, possibly married life again. And that makes sense because Ruth and Naomi all through our story are known as widows. They are known as women of grief. Uh, Such an extended grieving period would be expected. And ending that grieving period, it would also be expected to be marked by some sort of outward transformation because they would do things to themselves to show that they were grieving. And so cleaning and perfuming and replacing the clothes of mourning, yeah, that's a signal that we're done. Now it's time to see what life has in store for us. So that's one thing that I think is an explanation for what Naomi is telling Ruth to do. She says, show Boaz that you're finished grieving and show him that you are ready to enter life again. Now, there's also a fair consensus that there is a custom of wedding proposal, marriage proposal, that's largely unknown to us now, where a widowed woman could make her desire for marriage known. And and that custom, we think, is what we're seeing here in the book of Ruth, this sort of uncovering the the gentleman's feet, laying at his feet. Uh, I know it's strange, it's unusual, it's provocative, but there had to be a way for a widow to express a desire like this for marriage. But why the threshing room floor? And why at night? And why alone with Boaz? That's a very risky, risque scene. And there's not a lot of good explanations for why it looks the way it does, but let me try. First, for Ruth, a Moabite widow to propose to Boaz, a wealthy Israelite landowner, that would be scandalous all by itself. Just the, the nature of how far apart they are in their circles of life. She's a foreigner, not just a foreigner, but a Moabite widow, and Boaz is in the prime of his life, wealthy, landowner, Israelite. They're just so far apart, it's scandalous even to ask. And so, I believe one thing, uh, you know, it's, it's, okay, so the town of Bethlehem would congratulate Ruth on her loyalty to Naomi. It's another thing altogether for them to accept her trying to marry one of their prominent men. There's a risk here. And so, the idea here is that Ruth is to go to Boaz when he is alone to spare both of them the embarrassment of a public proposal. In other words, this is probably the most respectful way that Ruth could make her case to Boaz. Secondly, something that's happening here is this scene, it's provocative. I mean, what's happening on this threshing room floor at night, right? Okay, this scene is provocative and it's meant to be so to smash our stereotypes and expectations because in this day and age, in the book of Ruth, I mean, in the day and age of Ruth is what I should say, Moabite women were thought of as evil tempters who entice away Israelite men. That was a stereotype. These ladies were evil tempters who entice away Israelite men. You'd see a Moabite woman and you expect, oh, I know what's going to happen. And when you go through the Old Testament, you will see scene after scene of 
uh, foreign women enticing away Israelite men, but then also Moabite women. It's sort of strange. In Genesis 19, you have one of the oddest and most uncomfortable stories in the Bible. It's the story of Lot and his two daughters. And yeah, it's quite a strange scene. These two daughters seduce their father to have children. And the oldest daughter gives birth to a son, and she names him Moab. A nation is born from a very strange seduction. In Numbers 25, verses 1 and 2, we read about the Israelite men and Moabite women and what happened. And the result of what happened was a very severe judgment. In Numbers 25, 1 and 2, we simply read these words. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. And later in the passage, you will read that they yoked themselves to these women and to these gods. It was a terrible situation. And so Moabites, especially Moabite women, have a reputation in Israel. And here's the scene in the book of Ruth, a Moabite woman and an Israelite man. But what everyone expects to happen between Ruth and Boaz, what everybody thinks will happen, does not happen because they have integrity. And that integrity acts as a fence, as a guardrail against the temptation. Their integrity is for God. Both of them are devoted to God, and that devotion informs their actions. Here's a great lesson from this story, and that is this. You always have a choice. I mean, there's a a, a history here of Moabite women and Israelite men. It may not be uh, Ruth and and Boaz's history. They're both upstanding people, and, and as far as we know, they've not made mistakes. But you can see the mistakes of the heritage. You can see the pattern, and that should be telling us this, that you always have a choice. Maybe you have made mistakes in the past. Maybe those who know you, the people around you, know those mistakes, and they're looking for you. Oh, they're going to make that same mistake again. Oh, you, they're just going to do what they always do. Ruth and Boaz choose differently. And they choose differently than what everyone assumes will happen. And you can too. If you're listening right now and and you're feeling like you're stuck and you're in a pattern of sin, you can break that cycle. Because choosing the way of Jesus is always an option for you. And Jesus is always available for you. You can be redeemed by him. And he can lay a new path before you that you can choose. We probably should take a moment here and just describe what a threshing floor is anyway, right? I mean, that's not always too common to us anymore. It's a place uh, where you would take your harvest, and it's a place where the kernels of grain would be separated from the chaff and the straw. So the grain would be thrown into the air. You'd take a pitchfork, something that looks like a pitchfork at least, and the chaff, uh, the outer shell around a head of grain, would blow away, and it would blow the farthest away, become basically garbage. And then the straw would break off from the kernel, and it would also blow away, but not quite as far, so it could be gathered in its own pile. And then the grain, the kernel of grain from wheat or barley in this case, would fall mostly straight back down to the floor and could be gathered up into a pile. So this is a place where grain is separated. And it's on the threshing room floor that uh, Ruth uncovers Boaz's feet, and it's there that she lays down, and she waits. 
And that's a moment that is quite provocative, and it's a moment that can tip out of control if there isn't integrity. Boaz, he wakes up and he's shocked, and he asks, who is this at my feet? And Ruth responds wonderfully. She responds with identity. She identifies herself. She identifies Boaz. And then she brings God into the conversation, though it's a little hard to see. I really think she does. So, let's take a moment real quick and look at this, because this is a part of integrity. Ruth knows who she is. She identifies herself, not just that she's Ruth, but she identifies herself differently. She doesn't say, I'm Ruth the Moabite. That'd be a dangerous description with a reputation of Moabite women in this situation. That's how she's been identified throughout the book. But instead, she drops Moabite. And her name, her name just stands on its own. It's Ruth. But then she adds to it, Ruth, your servant. And the word here that she uses for servant is different from what she called herself in chapter 2. Here she identifies herself with a servant word that means I'm a person who needs protection. And I need your protection. She's appealing to Boaz to shield her. So she identifies herself, Ruth, not an odd Moabite, but your servant, one who needs your help. Then she identifies Boaz as a, and it's the Hebrew here is Goel. That is a phrase you may have heard, a kinsman redeemer, or as the current NIV translation says, a guardian redeemer. And God placed throughout the law circumstances where the oldest male would be responsible for rescuing and even repurchasing lost family land or repurchasing a family who sold themselves into slavery and rescuing them. And yes, if a brother's widow, uh, if, a, if a brother died and their widow was around and they didn't have any kids yet, that brother would be a kinsman redeemer and marry her and have kids. And that child would be considered to be the brother's child and continue the family tree. A kinsman redeemer is basically a rescuer. They never have to do it. They're not obligated. That's important to know. It's always a free choice. And so she invites Boaz to be a goel. And yes, Boaz will act as a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. He's not necessarily the nearest kinsman redeemer. He identifies there's someone closer. I'm going to go talk to them first. That's a little nerve-wracking. I mean, Ruth is laying it all on the line here. And Boaz says, I would marry you, but let's talk to that other Redeemer first. What's going to happen? But then Ruth does one more thing. She shows her identity. Ruth, your servant. She knows Boaz's identity, a Goel, a kinsman Redeemer. And then she brings God into the picture. Now, how does she do that? She asks Boaz to spread the corner of his garment over her. And I I know that doesn't sound very holy. I mean, that's probably the most unholy picture we have in our culture today. Hey, cover me with your clothes. I mean, how can that request be godly? But it's the way she says it. In English, it's not quite as clear as it could be. It's the English simply says, cover me with the corner of your garment. In Hebrew, she says, spread your wing over me. 
Now, I know that's still a strange phrase. I mean, what on earth does that mean? Spread your wing over me. But let's think back for a moment to chapter 2, when Boaz blesses Ruth. In fact, you can go back to Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, and here's Boaz speaking to Ruth, and he says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord. May the God of Israel, under whose wings that you've come to take refuge. Boaz says, hey, I know that you are following God and you are taking refuge under his wings. And then Ruth says, hey, spread your wing over me. She's reminding Boaz of his blessing that God would be her wings of refuge. And she's saying, for this to work, Boaz, I need your refuge. But your refuge really has to be God's refuge. He has to be, God has to be at the center of this relationship Wow, she identifies herself, she identifies Boaz, and then she says, and if this is going to work, we've got to bring God into this. And that's really the key to any relationship. you got to bring God into it. So you have character and integrity and honoring God. And it's just not easy to do in this world today. So I want to ask the question real quickly, why is integrity so difficult? And there's a lot of reasons. I mean, we could say sin. That's the big reason. But the result of sin is that we have a a society where looking out for number one is everybody's priority. That's the instinct all of us face. And serving ourselves is a recipe for selfishness, for cutting corners and slighting others. Looking out for number one, yeah, it means integrity can take a back seat. Sometimes we have trouble with integrity because we are obsessed with appeasing others. Many of us um, step into sin simply because we're trying to please uh, or appease others, make them happy. I want that person in my life to be happy, so I'm going to do what they want, or I don't want them to be angry with me, so I'm going to do what they want, and to please them means we break our integrity. We have a society where a lot of people sees others as just a means to an end. If I can get what I want out of you, then whatever I do doesn't matter. And the only question people ask is, how how will you benefit me? And that's not going to make for a very strong integrity. A lot of times in our culture, too, we often display the character that we think people want to see, and then we hide our flaws away. That is, we show people what they think, what we think they want to see, but our heart and thoughts, they're another matter. Here's a story. Uh, Dr. Bob Record tells a story of a of a major move that was about to take a place inside of the halls of a Fortune 500 company. It was unheard of, but the company was ready to promote a 38-year-old man to vice, uh, from vice president to president. The young man was very impressive. He was a great businessman. He wooed and awed the board of directors, and upon completing the final interview process, the board had broke for lunch with plans to offer this man the prestigious position. This is going to be amazing. The young man went to lunch alone that day and was unintentionally followed by several of the board members who happened to stand in line behind him. Naturally, they were watching him closely, filled with pride and excitement of the coming announcement, and just then, everything changed. When the young man came to the bread section, he placed two, and this is, I know, such a small thing, he placed two three-cent butter patties on his tray and covered them with his napkin. When he paid for his meal, he did not reveal the stolen treasures. An hour later, a room that should have been filled with joy was instead marked by anger, and instead of being promoted to president, the young man with a promising future was fired, all for six cents worth of butter, because they were saying that if he's not going to have integrity in little things, 
Why would he have it in the big ones? Yeah. Character is about who you are in the dark when no one's looking, right? One more thing I'd have you remember about the Book of Ruth. The Book of Ruth is haunted by the end of the Book of Judges. They're right next to each other in the Bible. And the last verse you read in Judges before you start reading Ruth is this. It's Judges 21, uh, verse 25. And it says this, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. It's that last phrase. Well, the whole verse is important because God was supposed to be king, and it's telling us that nobody saw God as their king. But then that last part, everyone did as they saw fit. Wow. And when everyone does as they see fit, sin becomes prized. And godliness is seen as outdated and inconvenient. And, you know, that's happening a lot in our society today. Everybody wants to do what they think is best for them. And so ideas like godliness and integrity, oh, that's, that's old-fashioned. That's not working for us anymore. So we throw it to the wayside and it gets hard to live with integrity then. So what about building integrity? How do we do that? Well, integrity must start with God. God asks us to turn away from the things that seem to be immediate pleasures, and he asks us to aim at the eternal. And there's some good reasons for this. Because if we only work for what's immediate, we're working at what is happening right now. And here's what I know. Our world is constantly changing. And the stuff that our world values constantly changes. And you know what? Even our personal desires and what we want change. And it's very hard to order your life around uncertainty. It's hard to build integrity when the things that you want change. But God does not change. And he invites us to move from the immediate and the changeable to the eternal. Now, in our story, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz all have to decide what they want. Do they want just food for the moment? A little bit of security. Do they want a husband bought by sin? Do they want a moment of pleasure? Or do they want the everlasting kingdom of God and his blessing? And so they build their integrity starting with God. And their integrity is shaped by God. You got to start, if you want integrity, you got to build it with God at first. He's got to be the foundation. And then you've got to let him shape your integrity all through your life. Because integrity not only starts with God, but continues with him and is shaped by him. I want to share three passages of scripture with you that you've likely heard We've heard something like them, and they describe the shape of godly integrity. There's Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, which describe the fruit of the Spirit. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And as you read the story of Ruth and Boaz, I tell you what, the fruit of the Spirit is evident in their lives. Another passage very familiar to many people is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, a description of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts always hopes, and always perseveres. 
Do you hear the echoes of that biblical love in the book of Ruth? I do. And it comes out in their integrity. John 15, 12 and 13 simply says this. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Love others. In fact, Jesus loves redemptively. Our culture today does not proclaim the command to love others. It tries to. It uses those words, love others. But you know what our culture today actually proclaims? It proclaims, love me. I want to see that you are loving me. And then our culture says, I'm going to judge you for how I feel if you've loved me or not. Our culture doesn't really say love others. It says love me. If you want to thrive in your integrity, invite God to be the foundation of your integrity and invite him to grow the fruit of the spirit in your life, to transform your love into God's love and to take seriously God's command to love others because it's a redemptive sort of love. These three scriptures are a fantastic measure of your integrity. And you know what? These three scriptures are a fantastic measure of the relationships you find yourself in, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship or a neighborly relationship. Are you showing the fruit of the Spirit? Are you showing biblical love? Are you showing a love like Christ has shown? So, your decisions are holy. And those decisions will set the course of your character, your integrity. One last quote for you. It's from an unknown source, but I like it a lot. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. Watch your actions. They become habits. Watch your habits. They become character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. And godly integrity asks you to honor God no matter what. And that's a good destiny to be aiming at. My prayer is a very simple one. It's written by someone else. Thomas Akempis wrote this prayer, and I think it's a good one for us. Our God, in whom we trust, strengthen us to not regard over much who is for us or who is against us, but to see to it that we be with you in everything we do. I want to pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.